Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to the Old Testament minor prophet book of Amos. If you do not have a Bible, hopefully there's one in the seat uh, bottom in front of you. Feel free to take that with you if you do not have a Bible yourself. Also, do not be afraid to go to the table of contents to find the page number of your Bible um, in your Bible for the book of Amos. Amos is a minor prophet, so it's a smaller book. It's in toward the back of your Old Testament. Um, if you're in any of the major prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, keep going to your right. And it's the third minor prophet book. You'll stumble into Amos. If you're anywhere in the New Testament, you can go to your left and you'll go through a whole bunch of other books that have different names until you come to Amos. We will be this morning in chapter two. And we're in chapter two this morning because we've already considered chapter one. In fact, last week we almost performed a miracle in looking at all of chapter one together. Where Amos begins the bulk or the meat of his sermon in chapter one and into chapter two. As he gets ready to address Israel, remember, he's a prophet in the time where the kingdoms are split. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. In chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that Amos has words concerning Israel. But in all of chapter 1, he doesn't talk to Israel. Instead, he talks to all the surrounding nations of Israel. Six different nations in chapter 1, and in the first part of chapter 2, we call them pagan nations because they do not have the law of God or the word of God or the leadership of God. And there's... A repetitive theme in chapter 1 and chapter 2 where God looks at each nation and he pronounces an act of wickedness that he is now going to judge them for. These are meant to be repeated acts of wickedness. God has been patient with them over time, but now the time has come when God will no longer extend mercy. He will call them to account for what they've done. And it makes no difference whether they are pagan nations without God's law or if they are his very people with his law. God has no problem holding them accountable. And we talked about why last week. It's because he is the God of the whole earth, whether he's acknowledged as such or not. And as God, he has the full prerogative and has even made the promise that he will bring everyone, people and country alike, to account for their actions. Well, this has been the beginning of Amos's sermon, and he's masterfully working his way toward Israel. And as he's been pronouncing these uh, wicked acts of the six pagan nations, he's increased Israel's excitement. Remember, Israel considered all of these nations enemies. They were the nations, the six nations that surrounded them on the on the map, surrounded them on the compass, and they were their enemies. They were, they were despised by the Israelites. And so to hear God pronounce judgment upon your enemies induces within you great delight. They were woefully unprepared and unaware of what Amos was doing. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul rightly diagnoses the attitude of even the Israelites in Amos' day. In Romans 2, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself. 
because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Unwittingly, Israel is agreeing with God's assessment of the judgment that will be rendered on them as they show delight in God's judgment on these surrounding nations. Now, as we walk through chapter 1, just by quick way of reminder, we categorize the sins of these pagan nations into three different groups, each group increasing in intensity or in wickedness. They are violating not just acts of God's law, but they're violating basic human decency as they display extreme acts of cruelty. The first group we considered last week was cruelty against strangers, cruelty against people, people you have no allegiance to, people you're not even familiar with. God does not condone cruelty, excessive, unnecessary cruelty, even to strangers, even if it's for national pride, even if it's for economic merit or economic advancement. God has no delight in cruelty. These nations were, even in wartime, excessively cruel. The second group that we considered in regards to these nations' sins was cruelty against their brothers. These are nations and peoples that they had uh, relations with and treaties with and obligations toward. And not only were they cruel to them, delivering them over to other people, they actually betrayed them in the most personal way by killing their brothers. Thirdly, God is pronouncing judgment because these nations display cruelty against the helpless and the defenseless. If you look back into verse 13 of chapter 1, we're told of the Ammonites and they ripped open pregnant women so that they might enlarge their border. Killing babies that were not even born yet so that they might not seek vengeance on them later. Moab, in chapter 2, desecrating beyond reason the bones of a conquered king. Amos would not have us get bogged down so much in the details of what's going on here. He wants us to see the big picture of, of what he's communicating. And the big picture is this, that God will execute judgment on people and on nations for their long-standing sins that they've committed even over generations. Whether it be cruelty to strangers, cruelty to brothers, or cruelty to the helpless and defenseless, God has standards, and breaking those standards and violating those principles will not go unnoticed. And no one will ever be able to plead ignorance or any other excuse for violating God's standards. Well, after all of that, we come down now this morning to chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 5, where God shifts from the surrounding nations of Israel to now their closest neighbor, Judah. Verse 4 and verse 5, God sets His gaze on Judah and on Israel and he reminds them that if the other nations are accountable to him, so are his own people, and perhaps more so his own people. In other words, Judah and Israel alike are about to experience significant change. 
significant change in how they see themselves, how they relate to God. Even in their geographical surroundings, God is going to stir up even the land that these nations occupy. A couple of weeks ago, I called my mother one morning and I said to her, Mom, you know that life has changed significantly for you when you spend a good amount of time getting ready in the morning, trying to get a hair off your face before you realize it's a wrinkle. She understood. Judah and Israel haven't looked in the mirror for a long time. And they're about to find many wrinkles of ungodliness that they had not noticed before that God with great precision will point out to them. Look with me in chapter 2 of Amos, verse 4 and verse 5. Following the exact same pattern and the exact same method as the rest of the nations in chapter 1, that is on purpose. God is showing that He's going to treat His people the same as He treats these other nations because His people have treated Him just like the other nations have. So He follows the exact same formula for Judah in verse 4. This is what He says. Thus says the Lord. And remember the Lord right there is the special divine name of God, Yahweh. Not speaking for a pagan God. I'm not speaking for a dead God. Speaking for the living God, Yahweh. Identifying Himself. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Judah. And for four. I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah. And it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. This indictment would have perhaps made Israel the most happy. They would have rejoiced at Judah's condemnation. In their eyes, it would have set them apart as the true people of God. Remember, though they come from the same ancestry, they had rebelled and split. And so Israel in the north and Judah in the south often fought against each other. And though kin, they even considered themselves as legitimate enemies. It would have delighted Israel to hear of God's judgment on Judah But what they don't know is that Judah's sin, mentioned in verse 4, is unique from all the other pagan nations, distinct significantly, to such a degree that it's the overarching sin of not just Judah, but also of Israel. And by extension, it's the overarching sin of all those who profess to be God's people. Judah has gone astray, and it's for one singular reason that they went astray. And if we ever go astray, or if Israel goes astray, it's because of the exact same reason that Judah went astray. And yet, Israel does not yet see that. Now, what do I mean when I say Judah has gone astray? Amos tells us that in 
chapter 2, verse 4. He says, their lies have led them astray. That's probably the summary problem going on in, in Judah. If you could just concisely articulate it in a, a quick uh, phrase, it would be that they have gone astray. And that doesn't just mean gone astray in a few ways or a few areas. It's not as if they've just made a few mistakes here and there. When Amos says that they've gone astray, it's a broad indictment that in everything they do, they're wrong. They're not just taking poor steps here and making poor choices there and getting slightly off course now. What he means to say when he says that they've gone uh, gone astray in verse 4 is that they are absolutely nowhere on the map of righteousness anymore. And what might have started, and we talked about this last week, what might have started as a few degrees off path in the beginning is now miles off course. It's not a small problem for them. It's not a small problem for God's people today. To be described by God as gone astray does not imply just the normal, ordinary struggles that we have because of our fallen flesh it means that in every single area and way of life we are way off course the question is why is judah lost why have they gone astray i think there's four things that we can highlight out of verse four number one because they've rejected the law of the lord Like with the phrase gone astray, it doesn't refer to to just a portion or just a section of God's word or God's law. God means the whole thing. They've rejected it all. And we know the significance of that, right? To reject God's word is to reject God himself. God so identifies with his word that the way that we treat the Bible is the way that we treat the God of heaven. And so to cast it off or to disregard it is to cast him off. It's to throw off his protection and his expectations and his standards and even his instructions that are given to, to keep us and protect us from harm and lead us to life. Well, this is the problem with all of God's professing people who are astray. It starts with this very sin. It started with this sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And the Satan, the serpent, comes and he tempts them. And how does he tempt them? By denying or doubting God's word, ultimately rejecting God's word. His first utterance is, did God really say? The next thing we know, Adam and Eve have plunged all humanity into sin because they have doubted, even slightly so, God's word. They have technically and effectively rejected the law of the Lord. And that, brothers and sisters, is where all sin can be traced back to. In fact, it is so significant and so serious that we might even summarize it by saying to reject God's law is to embrace all manner of sin. Now, this particular point, I believe, in Judah's um, troubles here means more of the belief of Judah, more of their convictional uh, understanding, more of their mind. When 
Amos says that they've rejected the law of the Lord. It's not like they've just thrown their Old Testament Bibles out in the street. He's talking more about their approach to God. He's talking more about their general disposition towards the rules and precepts of God Himself. Such things will always manifest itself in our lives and in the way that we live, but I think what Amos is getting at here is more their attitude toward God's Word. The internal perception of God's Word. The internal embrace or lack thereof of God's Word. I think that's a very important distinction to make. Why is that? One, because the Bible says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And struggling against this sin in this world isn't just external, it also is internal. We fight against our own very flesh. It was Charles Spurgeon who says we carry our worst enemies within us. So to reject God's word from the inside is is hard because our hearts tend to convince us that we're actually doing what is right when in reality, in God's eyes, we're doing what is wrong. And since, number two, since our hearts are deceitful, it makes it hard to discern truth versus falsehood. And over time, before you know it, like Judah, we will not only have cast God's word off in the mind and the heart, but we will have by extension, cast God off from the mind and the heart so that in all of our ways we will not even acknowledge Him. Let me remind you of the warning here. Rejecting God's law is not always obvious. We can look at people all throughout the world who reject God's world and and quickly identify them as such because they not only do so with their lives, but they say so with their mouths. Yet it's a much more dangerous practice to know God's Word, to read God's Word, to hear God's Word, to even belong to a church, to attend a church, and be entirely unmoved by God's Word. Resist its conviction Neglect its teaching. Treat it as unnecessary for life. As maybe subpar to your own instincts or your own wisdom. In our particular context, what has been dubbed the Bible Belt of the United States, it's rare that we find someone blatantly, publicly rejecting God's word with their mouth, but finding people who sit in the church and sit in the pews of the church week in and week out who possess countless Bibles in their home and yet still reject it with their lives and their heart and their mind, that is a lot easier to find. I wonder how much surprise we would have if God sent a modern-day prophet to us with the exact same indictment. As Judah. You know what part of the problem is. Judah thought they were doing what was right. After all. They stayed true to the line of David. They stayed true to Solomon. They have Jerusalem. 
They have the temple. They have the promises that one day from their their land a lion will rise up. By by um, association, we know Israel's um, condition. Amos tells us in chapter five that they're still trying to worship God. They're still trying to do what they believe to be right. They're still gathering together in solemn assemblies. They're still honoring the feast. They're still offering burnt offerings and grain offerings and fattened animals. They're still singing songs. God says, I reject all of that. By association, we know Judah's doing the exact same thing. Still keeping the rituals, still doing the works, still honoring the rites, still defending the temple, still practicing their religion. But God looks at them and He says, your behavior toward people, your attitude toward justice, your treatment of the poor, your identifying with the very heart of God, All of these things show that you don't practice a true religion, you practice a fake religion. You have, in fact, rejected God's word. Even though you think that you live by its standards. Fast forward a couple of hundred years to Matthew's gospel, chapter 15. And what do we discover in Matthew chapter 15? Jesus applies the exact same problem to the religious people of his day. Quoting from the Old Testament, Jesus says in Matthew 15 that you have taught your traditions as if they were the doctrines of God. And thus you have made void the word of God. It's a it's a constant theme in human history. That we tend to reject God's word For the sake of our own preferences and our own opinions and our own traditions and our own wisdom and our own standards. All the while thinking that we're godly, thinking that we're faithful, thinking that we're even right before God. How much weeping and wailing there will be one day. And how much sorrow must feel the halls of heaven when countless church members stand before Christ and are declared to depart from Him. Myriads upon myriads of people who thought they were right with God, thought they believed the gospel, thought they loved the word and obeyed the word, And the truth is, they've rejected God's law. Just because you or I think that we're serving God, just because we think we walk with God, just because we think we are doing things right in the sight of God does not make it true. Many have made such claims. Brothers and sisters, our command as Christians 
is complete allegiance and devotion to the Bible. Because that's how God has spoken. That's how God has revealed himself. And that's how God instructs us. And he doesn't instruct us to limit us. He instructs us for our flourishing. Makes us grand promises of heaven. Supernatural promises of forgiveness of sin. He tells us the path of righteousness, which he also tells us is the path of of life. Our command, our commission is to be faithful and allegiant to the scriptures and to propagate them in the world. Because doing so, according to God's standards, is being faithful and allegiant to him. You and I do not ever have the prerogative to tweak God's word or to make adjustments with it or innovate with it or compromise it or improve upon it or alter it not for our own comfort not for our own well-being and certainly not for cultural relevance trying to make God's word fit the times or the occasion Amos is a heavy book and and it's good for us that it's heavy because we must be warned maybe perhaps even more so today than any other day, that just because a group calls itself Christian or calls itself a church, yet compromises, alters, or denies parts of God's Word certainly doesn't mean that it's true. And that's true on a corporate level for a whole church. That's true on an individual level. Your rejection, my rejection, our rejection of God's Word, it may not be obvious today one day it will be we may not think it's true but it often begins subtly and the fact that God has included this warning this punishment in his word for you and I today is so that we might heed the warning and repent of such a dangerous practice God's word is hard sometimes. Really hard to apply. Really challenging, really direct, really convictional. And there are many times I'd prefer it to say something that it doesn't. But as the people of God, we have no option but to listen to our God, to believe that he is good and right and true and to trust what he says is best, even if it hurts. Judah first rejected the law of the Lord. Number two, we're told that they have not kept his statutes. I don't think this is repetitive. I think this is communicating another degree of rejection. So if rejecting the law of the Lord is a matter of our beliefs or our attitude or our general disposition towards God's word, then I think not keeping his statutes deals more with our external conduct and behavior. And that's logical, right? It follows that if we reject God's law, we will also not keep his statutes. Not walk in his ways or his rules or his precepts or his principles. Instead, we'll be like the Israelites who were in the time of the judges. If you look at the very last verse of the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Each man did what was right according to his own sight. 
once you and I reject God's law or once the world is guilty of rejecting God's law, we then replace it with our own standards and what we think is right and begin walking in our own ways, in our own wisdom. If there's ever an accurate summary of the world we live in today, that is it. Secularism wants to reject the church and God and the Bible and replace it with fluid, subjective truth. Deny the pillar of absolute right and wrong and replace it with fluid subjectivity. That's what follows logically if you reject God's word. And let me tell you what the Bible says. The end of that path is always devastation and destruction. You cannot reject God's word for your own worldly wisdom and practices and think that it will end good for you. Another constant theme among human history is not just that we make mistakes, but that we're actually really good at ruining just about everything we touch. And the reason is obvious, according to a biblical worldview, we're corrupted by sin. That corruption covers every part of us and also everything that we touch. Spiritually speaking, we're unclean apart from Christ and unclean people only spread their filth. So you and I cannot expect that we can reject God's word and then not walk in his ways and think it will end well for us. It will not end well. In fact, we will not only fail to please him. We'll actually find ourselves against him. That's the third thing mentioned about Judah. They follow their own lies. Notice the progression here. They reject the law of the Lord, which means they now walk in their own worldly wisdom according to their own lies. Because when you reject what's absolute truth according to reality, like the scriptures, you create a vacuum and that vacuum fills itself with your own imagination. So Judah has gone from a passive act of no longer revering God's word to now an active, proactive act of opposition to God's word. And the, tr- the reason that is, is because lies are always in opposition to the truth. That's why they're lies. A lie is not a harmless act. doesn't harmlessly sit abstractly in the universe. Lies always stand against the truth, seeking to replace it. So opposition to God's word, it may not always come in the form of persecution or some other violence or ridicule. It may come in the embracing of a lie. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. As he surveys human nature, he says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then what? Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They walked in the exact opposite path of righteousness and they went in the opposite direction of life and they went in the opposite direction of satisfaction and true lasting joy and meaning and purpose and flourishing brothers and sisters the world we occupy is always peddling lies at us 
And if we do not know God's word, we will always be a slave to what sounds right and feels right and looks good. But I know many fast food restaurants that look and smell and taste good, but will kill you in the end. Opposition to God's word, it may be blatant and direct, but it's often subtle. Beginning to follow and believe lies instead of the truth. Judah began walking in lies that they thought were true. Well, fourthly, with Judah, they not only have rejected God's law, they not only have failed to keep His statutes, they not only have Embrace lies for truth. But number four, they've been doing this for a long time. They've ruined generations because they've walked after the lies in which their fathers walked. That means, number one, they were trained slowly over time to be where they're at. Rarely do things like this happen in an instant, though they can. We might say that a person might jump off of a cliff and in a moment change their life. But often, spiritual error slides into our lives over a slow creep. You heard me say last week, and it's still just as true, what we do today certainly affects tomorrow as a church. And with our children and with our grandchildren. Number two... The fact that they are walking in the lies that their father walked in means that they failed to see the error of their fathers. And they failed to see the error of their fathers because they valued tradition over God's word. They valued the practices and ways of their fathers over God's law. They looked to what their forefathers, grandfathers, immediate fathers had to say. Instead of what God's word has to say. I'll tell you, one of the hardest things in life is to go against the way that you were raised. To go against your mom or your dad. Or to come to the realization that how you were raised was false. And to embark on a journey that is hard, it's foreign, it's charting your own path, spiritually speaking. It's not only hard, it's a, there's a continual hardness because... If you're a dad, you don't know what a Christian dad looks like. You don't know what a godly husband looks like. You don't know what it means to lead your kids in the Scriptures. You're, you're figuring it out as you go kind of a deal. You have no example. Unless by God's grace you see it in the church. This is what Judah was guilty of. They, they just kept following the ways of their fathers. They didn't go to God and try to learn. We follow what we value. We follow what we prioritize. And so if you place a higher value or a higher priority on your culture or your heritage or your nationality or your school or your friends or anything else like that, then that is what you will follow. You'll be molded according to it. Number three, following the lies of their fathers means they've been following these lies for a very long time. 
which I tell you that to point out this, God has been patient with them. God has been merciful with them. For generations they've been walking in error. And yet God has permitted them time to repent. But get this, instead of repentance, they grew complacent. And they mistook God's patience for God's approval. Brothers and sisters, be warned. God's patience does not equal approval. And God's mercy, permitting us time to repent, is not a time where we should grow complacent with our sin. Repentance, the merciful hand of God being extended even today, is something you and I should unashamedly and quickly capitalize on. Seek the Lord while He may be found, the Bible says. Because one day is coming when God's saving arm will be pulled back. The truth is, as we survey Judah, the truth is there's little difference between us and Judah. In times of prosperity and peace like they're experiencing as a country, it can be easy to slowly compromise God's instruction for our own preferences, mistaking the cultural peace or the economic prosperity as God's blessing. We find that in Judges chapter 17, when a man makes an image out of wood and metal and begins to worship it and appoint his own priest to it. And then he tricks a Levite priest priest to lead worship to this carved image and then he declares has the audacity to declare God must be blessing me because I have a Levite as a priest we can mistake God's patience for acts of blessing and slowly compromise and creep into a dangerous place of rejection thinking that we're walking with God when we're actually rejecting God after all it's easy for us to mistake our wisdom with God's wisdom. It's easy for us to elevate and mistake our traditions for obedience. And what I fear to be true for the American church, it's easy for us to build Christianity in our own image. The only solution to avoiding such things is complete fidelity to God's word above everything else. To constantly, as a church, seek to keep Christ as our head. As individuals, to yield and submit our will to His will. To, in great faith and dependence, acknowledge before Him regularly, I don't have it all together, I am entirely dependent upon God. Well, just very quickly, verse 5, I want to highlight the judgment. God says, because of these things, I'll send a fire upon Judah. I think what's telling about that is it's the same thing God has said to several of the other nations. He's going to send a fire. As I said 
at the beginning, the pattern and even the language reminds us that God is now treating his people as if they were the unbelieving other people of the world. And it is, again, because his people have treated him like the unbelieving people of the world. God is not operating on an eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth principle here. As I said, He's extended patience and mercy and forgiveness to them over time. But there will come a time when God will call them to account. The second thing is mentioned in verse 5. This fire is going to come upon Judah. And look what it's going to do. Devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. There's a lot of embedded meaning there, but let me just say quickly, Jerusalem was the epicenter of Jewish life. The dwelling place of God, where the temple was at, where the glory of God descended and lived, where the ark was, where the capital and the kingdom was, where David was. It was the center of social life. It was the center of political life. It was the center of religious life. It was God's city for God's people in God's promised land. But because of their sin, God will rain fire down even on Jerusalem. So that all that they hold dear and the very epicenter of their existence, their very national identity, will be swallowed up in destruction. You and I, we may be guilty of holding things tighter than God. Our family, our patriotism, our money, our stuff, I promise you, whatever you and I hold tighter than we hold God will be consumed by devastating fire in the end. The only thing that will last, the only thing that matters is clinging to Christ with all our might. Judah goes wrong because they reject God's law. And it leads in everything that they hold dear, their very identity being wiped away. To avoid that, we don't reject God's law, we embrace it. We don't reject God's word, we embrace it. Let's fast forward just real quickly to a few hundred years. John chapter 1, and we're told the incarnate word of God has come. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. The full, complete self-description, self-revelation of God in the face and person of His Son, Jesus. We must cling to that Word. We hold the living Word. Because that Word gave His life for us. That Word took on our sin and was punished for our sin on the cross. Endured our death. Rose back to life so that we might, being united to Him, have eternal life. You know how the Bible says that can be ours? By having faith in the promise of God 
that whoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Forsaking sin, trusting Christ. Judah rejected God's law, didn't keep his statutes, embraced lies, and peddled them for generations. Such is true for you and I, except that Jesus was punished for each one of these things. The living Word of God was punished as if He rejected the Word of God. The one who walked perfectly according to the law of God was punished as if He did not keep the statutes of God. The one who only spoke truth and never a lie was punished for us as if He had walked in lies. The one who shed light in the darkness punished as if He peddled lies for generations so that you and I might be forgiven, made right with God, escape the destruction and the wrath that's coming, and instead have that wrath and destruction replaced with love and forgiveness. To think about the way that Christ died, we are going to end our service differently this morning. We're going to end it with the Lord's Supper. Because looking at what Amos has to say about Judah is especially important for the church to contemplate today. We might. In fact, we are always prone to being guilty of replacing the Word of God with our own religion and preferences. And as I said, the only escape from such rightful judgment is in the blood of Jesus. And so our only hope is to look to Christ on the cross. That's what we do in the Lord's Supper. We remember that Christ broke His body for us. We remember that Christ shed His blood for us. And that in the broken body of Christ and the covered blood of Christ, we're actually declared righteous before God. Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about how... We are to understand it, how it came about, why it's important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul teaches us, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sin plagues us at every turn in life. Our only hope is to remember the death of Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we as one body, one church, proclaim the Lord's death. Remember that salvation comes through the sacrifice of Christ. But notice Paul says we also proclaim it until he comes. The Lord's Supper makes us look backwards to what Jesus did. It also makes us look forward to Christ coming back. When Christ comes back, everyone will give an account. And those who are found in the sacrifice of Christ will be found forgiven. So it's important what we're declaring here as a church. 
So Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does it mean to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? First, it means taking it as an unbeliever. If you're not a born-again Christian, this isn't for you. And you would be better off spiritually not taking it until you have settled that you're right with God. Taking it in an unworthy manner in this context means taking it if our church was divided and unhealthy. Or if an individual here has something against a brother or a sister in this church. You should resolve that before you take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not for the perfect, it's for the forgiven. For the saved. For those who know the forgiving grace of Christ. But still, as such, as a church, we take time to examine ourselves and ask the Lord to lead us to do what is right in regards to the Lord's Supper. So I want to give you just a few moments here to be alone with the Lord in prayer. Confess sin if you have to. Ask for His forgiveness. And then in just a moment, we'll take the Lord's Supper together to end our service.